0: Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. One of the wonderful things to me about the scripture is the fact that it's gives us so much about the personal lives of some of the great men that God was able to use. When you get to thinking about it, we know there is a lot of biography and autobiography in the Bible. I don't know about anybody else, but I have learned more theology, I think, from reading the lives of great Christians than I have from reading the systematic theologians, Dr. Church. Because there is something about uh, truth when it gets translated into life that is easier for me to grasp than when it is stated simply an abstract principle. Now, I certainly am not opposed to systematic theology and believe that we need the best systematic theologians that we can get, and everybody ought to read some. But uh, it's helpful to me when I can see it come down into an individual man's life and see what God did for him and why he did it for him. That then I can begin to get a glimpse of what he can do for me and what he wants to do for me. Now I think all of us have within us a desire to be used of God and a desire to please God. And uh, one of the things that I am grateful for is the way in the Old Testament and in the New too, When God picks out a man to use him again and again he will tell us a good bit about him. Now, there is a lot about Ezekiel that we do not know. You can read Ezekiel, read it, read it, and you will find that there's not a great deal of personal data about him outside of his spiritual life. But after all, that's the thing that we should be most interested in. So Ezekiel uh, is of value to us, and this, that it shows us the way God dealt with him and the way God used him. Ezekiel lived in a day that was very parallel to our own. It was a day when society had pretty well broken down around him. His own nation had become so dissolute and rebellious against God that God in his inexorable judgment had taken them into captivity and made them the slaves of the Babylonians. And Ezekiel himself is living among these slaves. They were not slaves in the sense that they were bound in chains, but they were slaves in the sense that they were separated from their own country, separated from the things that they loved, and were under the political and military control of an enemy power, Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonians. Now, I think you know that the great tendency in human life is for leveling. All you have to do is look at the world of nature around you and look at the mountains and most people will, if they know anything about them, will tell you that they are lower now than they used to be. Because all of the natural processes are to wear down and to beat down and to get everything smooth and to get everything level. Now, if that's true physically, you know that the rain takes the the dirt off the high places and moves it down to the low places. Now, if that's true physically, it is even more true psychologically. When you and I get into any group, the thing that we tend to want to do is find what we have in common and settle on that. Now, the end result of that is that it is very easy for people to become like the world that is around them, even when the world that's around them is wrong. And this is the great battle in being a Christian. The great conflict in being a Christian is how to stand in the midst of a society that isn't Christian and keep from becoming like that society. Now, it is not because you're superior to these people that are around you, but because God has done something unusual for you, and you have an obligation to these people. And the depth of your love for those people around you is indicated by your willingness to be painfully different at times. Not to sit in pharisaical judgment over them, but to lovingly be different for Christ's sake so that they can come to know the priceless things that you have found. Now, I am sure that when these Jews, and remember they were the people of God, they were the best people in the world, when they were carried to Babylon and found themselves living in the midst of Babylon and in the midst of Babylonians, all the tendencies were for them to want to be liked by their neighbors and want to become one with their neighbors. Now Ezekiel's great mission, it seems to me, was to keep Israel from becoming like the world of which they were apart, so that he could keep these people separate and distinct, so that when the time came for the end of the exile to approach, he would be able to bring back some people to Israel who were godly, devout, knew the true God, worshipped him, and that he could use. as the instrument yet for the redemption of the world. Now the thing you have to say about the Jews is that they were the most different people the world ever knew. All that you have to do is go back and read about the ancient world dealing with the Jews and you know that the ancient world didn't know quite what to do with them because they were very different. Different enough to be queer in in the eyes of the world. You go back and read about some of the Romans, the problems they had with the Jews, Everywhere they went, they took part of the people that they conquered and put them into their army and made soldiers out of them. But what under the sun are you going to do with a soldier that won't eat the same food that everybody else eats? Now, a good Jew in the South would have a horrible time. At least he wouldn't be able to eat over here, would he? What would you do with a good Orthodox Jew if he wanted to come to Taylor County Cantonese? You say, well, they don't still live that way, do they? Oh, yes, they do. I had at Brandeis and friends, Martha, Jews, and there were only a, there were a very few places in Boston that we could go together to eat where you could really get kosher food because anything that has the painted trace of pork in it cannot be eaten. And any dish that has ever had both milk and meat in it cannot be used. Brandeis University sent its student body home for Passover every year because it cost too much to set up two totally separate cafeterias, one that you would keep simply for use during holy season. Now, if you don't understand what I'm saying, what I mean is, can you imagine what it would be if you had to have one complete cafeteria to use for Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost, and that you'd... Didn't worry about any other time so that when you come to Christmas, you just shut up a complete eating system and go over and use a separate. Well, now, the Jews' understanding of their law was uh, just about that rigid. Uh, What are you going to do with a soldier who on Friday afternoon puts his gun down? And if they come up and kill him, he won't pick it up. And he won't pick up a knife either? Well, the Romans, you know, they say you can't run a war six days a week. And so the Romans never could use the Jews in their army, because on Saturday they would not fight. They'd die before they fight on Saturday, because it was the Sabbath, it was God's day of rest, and their day of rest, and so the Romans didn't know what to do with them. Now you go back through history and you will find that these people, Israel, were a real problem to people around them, because they were different. Now why were they so different? I think one of the reasons they were so different was not because there's any great virtue in not eating pork or eating pork, this kind of thing, but frankly, I believe one of the reasons for the difference was so people would at least take notice of them and say, what makes them so different? And then it gave the Jew a chance to explain why he was so different, and it gave him a chance to talk about his God and about his religion, and these people noticed them. Now you will remember that they were different from all the other peoples in the world in that they worshiped only one God. Now this was absurd to anybody else. They said all gods are good. You know, uh, anything religious is fine. Don't ever criticize another man's religion. This was the typical attitude in the ancient world. And the Jews said, oh, there's only one God and any substitute for him is an enemy that must ultimately be destroyed. And so they said, your gods are abominable to us. So that here is a Presbyterian who says, anything Methodist or Baptist is utterly abominable to me and nauseates me. Now, that was hard in the ancient world the same way it's hard in ours. They said there is only one God, and that is the God of Israel. And people said, how presumptuous can you be? Now, oftentimes the Jews did feel a bit uh this way about it. They patted themselves on the back and said we're the chosen people. But the Jew who understood his faith said there is only one God and he is the God who has chosen Israel. That doesn't mean we're better than you. That means we are under greater obligation than you. We're the chosen people and we're chosen for a heavy responsibility. And the true Jew did not particularly like to be chosen. Now God knew this. God knew that they didn't want to be different. God knew that when they got to Babylon, they'd be, the tendency would be for them to be like they were in Israel. If you've read the eighth chapter yet, you remember that in the eighth chapter, when he went into the temple in vision, he found that they had brought the whole world in, and they had brought other idols, other gods, into the temple court. So that Israel, instead of being different now, in the end of uh, their life as an independent nation, before Nebuchadnezzar came in and carried them into captivity and destroyed the city, they had done everything they could do to get rid of their difference. They had done everything they could do to become like the rest of the world. Now, if when they were at home in their own land with their own temple, they did everything they could do to become like the world, what do you think? Everybody expected them to do when they were carried away captives into Babylon. If in Jerusalem they brought pagan gods and set them up in the temple, what do you think God expected them to do when they got to Babylon? The natural instinct would be for them all to say, well, now we can worship like we wanted to do in Jerusalem. So you see, there was this leveling effect, the tendency to become like everybody else. Nobody likes to be different. All you've got to do is talk to one of these high school kids about what it's like to be in high school and stand as a real Christian. Unless times have radically changed, and if they've changed, I don't think they've changed for the better. I know that when I was in high school, one of the hardest things I had to do was take my stand and be willing to be different. And I'll never forget a science teacher who turned and looked at me and said, yes, but you're a little fanatical then. Well, this is the way they talked about the Jews. And this is the way they talk about a genuine Christian in any generation. Now, maybe uh, I'm not saying you should be different just to be different. And you shouldn't clobber people with your difference. But you shouldn't hesitate when the time comes to stand to be different. You've got to if you expect to stand as a Christian. You remember this is Peter's problem. The woman, the woman said to him, aren't you one of them? Which meant that he was different from them. He was a follower of Jesus. And he didn't want to be different, you say. Now down in his heart he did, but he was embarrassed. So he said, oh no. Now, as I read Ezekiel, the first chapter is God's first step in helping one man to be totally different from the world that's around him. And helping him get ready so that he can lead a group of people who are in the middle of a pagan world and keep them different the way God wants them to be different. Now, the way he does that is he begins by showing them that he, God, is different. Now, I wish we had time to talk about Babylonian gods, but the one thing I'll tell you, if you get a good glimpse of the God that is revealed in the first chapter of Ezekiel, you'll have the antithesis to any Babylonian god. So the first thing that God does with Ezekiel, he says, now, if I want you to be different, I've got to let you know how different I am. If I want you to be different from these Babylonians, I've got to let you know how different I am from the gods that they worship." And so the first thing you get is a vision of God. And that's very logical when you get to thinking about it. Now, if you're going to be God, you ought to know what he's like. And so God says, all right, first thing I'll do, I'll just let you know what I'm like. And so the prophet is given, first of all, a vision of the Lord. Now, uh, it is a remarkable vision. It is a difficult vision. It is an obscure thing for most of us. Now, if you think it's difficult, don't feel that you are unusual in that sense, because uh, the Jews thought it was such a problem that they would not let one of their young people read it until he was 30 years age. Now, if that were said in this country, all the kids would sneak off in the corner and read it ahead of time to find out for sure what was in it. Maybe that's the way we ought to do it. Maybe that's one way to get them to read it. But uh, the Jews did not know what to do with this vision, most of the time. And uh, there was a real debate about it. They were afraid of it. But, so they found that it was obscure. I've been interested in reading the commentaries, and the commentaries differ enough on it that you know that most of the commentators are uneasy when they write on it. I think it was Calvin who wrote on every other book in the Bible, except Ezekiel, and kept putting this one off. (laughs) And when he died, he had only done about half of it. It was a difference. But now, it is here for a purpose. And if there is this much space given to it, you and I ought to look at it. And when you notice, And if you've read the first 11 chapters, you've noticed how this keeps coming back. And if you read the whole 48 chapters, you'll notice how this keeps coming back. It is the sign, the seal, the reminder to Ezekiel of his ministry and of his mission. And I think it is actually the key to the book. Now, let me say a word about Ezekiel. We don't know a great deal about his personal life, but we do know that he was a priest. Now, a priest had a peculiar position, an exalted position in Israel's life. There were not many of them. And a priest was not a priest because he wanted to be a priest. He was a priest because of who his father was. He was a priest because his father was a priest. Now, they tell me that even to this day, in Israel, among the Jews, there are certain people who are told by their fathers that they're Kohen, Kohen, C-O-H-E-N, you know the name, Kohen. That is the Hebrew word for priest. Now, the priest was a person who from his birth was set apart to be used for the service of God in the courts of the temple. He was the only man who could perform the sacrifices and do the highest religious observances. It was a very different kind of thing from the kind of religious service and worship that you and I have. So that from the time a child was born, who was a priest, his total life was geared to that day when he would begin to do sacrificial service, priestly ministry in the courts of the temple. Now you've got to remember that the temple was the central piece of architecture in Israel too. When you came over the hill to see the city of Jerusalem, the thing that you saw was not the capital. The thing that you saw was not David's house or the king's house. When you came over the hill and saw the city of Jerusalem there in front of you, the thing that you saw which was the center of all of Israel's life was the temple. It was a resplendent thing. It was a beautiful thing. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've got a picture in your mind's eye of uh, the sight of it, where it was standing there for everybody to see in the center of all Israel's life. Now, the Jew actually thought it was the center of the world. And if you and I really believe that Jesus Christ lived in Jerusalem and that God was there, we think that Jerusalem is the center of the earth. Now, it gets indicated by the way the Jews talked about it. The Jews called Jerusalem the navel of the earth. That's where the umbilical cord from heaven to earth was on. And at the center of that navel was the temple. There was where God actually dwelt. It was the holiest place in the universe. It was the most important place in the universe. It was the most beloved place in the universe. Now, if you'd like to have the highest political office that there is in the United States, you can understand something of how a felt about his position. There was only one man in all Israel that was higher than he, and he was the chief priest. And he was that because one day a year he could go in and meet God, in the Holy of Holies. Now Ezekiel was a priest. So that all his life he was set to serve in the temple. And when he was a young man. And we're not sure how old. He may have been 25 years of age. Something like that. And uh, getting ready for the beginning of his priestly ministry. Nebuchadnezzar came along and picked him up and carried him to Babylon. And set him down and told him he died there. Now Babylon is a long way to Jerusalem, and eleven years later Nebuchadnezzar came along and destroyed the temple. Now, when that temple was destroyed, everything that Ezekiel had to live for was gone. It's like a man who spent his life training to do one job, and then they get rid of that job. There was no temple anymore. There were no sacrifices. Because you see, the Jews did not believe that you could sacrifice outside the temple. So it's like a man who spent his life getting ready to commemorate the Lord's Supper. And that's what his business is, the rest of his life, really. To baptize and commemorate the Lord's Supper. And then they quit doing that. Now what's a man going to do? Here is the kind of disillusionment that you can imagine in Ezekiel's mind. As now he is in Babylon and says, what is my role in life? And God says, I have a role for you. And it's not the kind of role you've dreamed about. It is a very different role, but it is infinitely more important than what you have dreamed about. Now if you'll let me, I will show you what I want you to be and what I want you to do. Alright? He has a vision. One of the beautiful things to me about studying the scripture is that the more you study it the more you have with which to understand any part G. Campbell Morgan that said if you want to write a commentary on any single verse you need 65 books plus all the rest of the 66 books except one verse in order to explain so that if you really want to understand John 3.16 you need all the 39 books of the Old Testament And all the books of the New Testament except the Gospel of John. And then you need 20 chapters of the Gospel of John and all the rest of that other chapter except for verse 16 to really be able to understand. Now, one of the problems with most of us is we take a verse out and try to read it by itself. I have an old professor at Princeton who did something for me that I've always been grateful for. He said one day, he said, you fellows that underline certain verses in your Bible with a red pencil when you read it, he said, I'd like to tell you that uh, what you don't underline is the word of God too and deserves as much attention as the verses you do underline. Well, I closed my Bible up so you wouldn't see the verses I had underlined and went home and began to read in between those, the verses I had picked out. But he, but but this is what is true. Most of us can catch a verse, and when we get it, that's a verse that means something good, that thrills us, and we memorize it, we ought to memorize it, we learn it and, it and it's just a highlight for us and a joy to us. As you keep reading the scripture, then you move from a verse, suddenly you'll see three or four verses that stand together in sort of a package. And when you get a package like that, you'll find that John 3.17 is as good as John 3.16. You'll find that Galatians 2.21 is as good as Galatians 2.20, but not many people find that because I've never heard anybody except John Church preach on, John, on Galatians 2.21. <laughs> find that scripture comes in packages, paragraphs, you keep studying, and soon you see that many of these chapter divisions are very logical. and you see the sixth chapter of Romans is a unit, and it's a marvelous thing, you keep reading, and finally you get to the place where you see not a chapter, but chapters fall into lots. and it's a marvelous thing when you can take a whole book and say, yeah, this is what's in that book, and you've got it in your mind, Now you know, that's the way I'd like to be about it where I could say, yeah, this is what's in Genesis, or this is what's in the book of Exodus, and when you do some of this, the next thing you find is that what's in Exodus explains what's in Genesis, and what's in Genesis explains what's in Exodus, and you don't want to keep them apart, and they all begin fitting together. Now, if you will look at Ezekiel 1 and take the rest of the Bible and begin fitting it together, you can begin to see that it is remarkably consistent with what is found in other places when men saw God. Now, that ought to be natural, because if it's the same God and people saw him, there might be some differences in it, but there also ought to be some things common, shouldn't there? And this is true. Now, let me say this is a word of warning. You shouldn't be surprised if there are some things when a man says he's seen the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God and you have difficulty understanding it all. You remember the story of the Tennessee Mountaineer who'd never seen an automobile? And he was sitting on his forecast asleep one day when he heard the, heard the thing coming around the bend, and looked, and here it came down the road. And he ran in the house and got his gun and came running out, and by the time he got back, it was on down the road away. And so he ran out in the middle of the road and got out on one knee in between the tracks and took good aim and shot and hit the thing. And, of course, when he uh, when the bullet hit the back of that Ford, why, uh, the fella in it turned around and looked. And there was a mountaineer with a gun leveled on him, so he dived over that door that wasn't open in the Model T, you know, and took to the hills and disappeared. And the old mountaineer came back in the house as the Ford, you know, running down the rut, just ran right on around the curve and out of sight, the rut was deep enough to guide him. Came back in the house and put his gun back up on the wall, and his wife said, well, did you kill it? Well, he said, no, I don't think I killed it, but it sure didn't make it turn loose of that man that had hold of." <laughs> now, how do you describe something <laughs> you've never seen before? You describe it in terms of the things you have seen, don't you? Now, the astounding thing to me about this is that there is as much of it as that I can understand as there is. Here is a man who says, I saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. Now, what is God like? It's not like you and me. He's God and we're creatures. The astounding thing to me is that there is as much here that we can grasp with some certainty as there is. Now let's look at it for a moment. The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, for the river Kebar. The hand of the Lord was there upon him. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm interested in this expression, the hand of the Lord was there upon him. In the Hebrew, the word hand means power. So the power of the Lord was upon him. I also read, as I read through, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And as I read it, I begin to get the feeling that when it says the hand of the Lord was upon him, he is saying the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. The power of the Lord was upon him. And how does the power of the Lord come upon a man? We talk about the Spirit came upon a man and he spoke. Now, it's amazing to me how consistent these passages are when they're written centuries apart. In the New Testament, you will remember that Jesus was being quizzed for the Pharisees, and they told him he was a Beelzebub, he was of the devil. And he said, well, what about these good works that I do? And they say, that's the way you do it. You have demonic power, and that's the reason you can cast out devils. He said, that's strange that I would use the devil's power to cast out the devil. isn't He said, let me tell you, you've missed it. If I, by the Spirit of God, cast out devils, then the kingdom has come to you. And the kingdom of God, they thought it was the kingdom of Satan, and Jesus said it's the kingdom of God. Now, we're living in a world that's just that confused, too, that it sees the kingdom of God and thinks it's demonic, and it sees the demonic and thinks it is good. But notice this. If you look at the parallel accounts in Matthew and in Luke, you will find that in the other passage, Jesus said... If I by the finger of God cast out devils, then the kingdom of God has come to you. So that in one place he says for the spirit of God and another place he says for the finger of God. Now the finger of God in this is a part for manner of speaking referring to the Holy Spirit. I think what you have here is and the power of God in his spirit came upon Ezekiel and his eyes were opened and he saw things that he had never seen before. Now you know that's one reason that I believe. That every man needs to know in his own heart. The fullness of the Spirit. In the sense that the Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost. And in what we talk about when we talk about entire sanctification, of Spirit coming into cleanse. We usually talk about a cleansing that takes place. But there is not only that. There is something as intellectual, I believe, as there is something moral and ethical in in the coming of the Spirit. I believe that when the Spirit of God descends upon a man, it quickens his intellect, his whole being. I believe it will help him physically, his health. I believe it will help him morally, spiritually, religiously. I believe it will help him intellectually. And I believe this is something that oftentimes we misunderstood. But uh, it will quicken it. George Mueller, the great Baptist, and a Plymouth Brethren, too, who handled those orphans in Bristol in England. He had been a Christian about four years. And one night as he was praying, the Spirit of God came upon him and filled him. And George Mueller's comment about it was, I began to read the Scriptures, And he said, in the next four hours, I learned more than I had learned in the previous four years of studying the Bible as a Christian worker, and as a Christian. He said, God opened my eyes to see things I had never seen before. Now, you will remember that Jesus, that last night of his life, said about the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. Now, it's, it's interesting to me that way back in the Old Testament, where they didn't know much about the Trinity, it was when the Spirit of God came upon a man that he got the same benefits that in the New Testament it says he gets when the Spirit of God comes upon him, and that's one of the reasons that I believe very firmly in the inspiration of Holy Scripture. It is all from one soul, and the consistency of it, the way it matches and fits is a marvelous thing to me. I move around in circles where I hear people talk about the contradictions in Scripture, and uh, when I was attending pants at school, and I still get in it's amazing to me the contradictions that people see in Scripture. The astounding thing to me is not the contradictions, but the lack of them. The way the things fit, place with place, part with part. 592 B.C. with 30 A.D. And it is because of a common origin and source behind it now. So the hand of the Lord was upon you. And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and the brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof is the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and everyone had four faces, and everyone had four wings, and their feet were straight feet, and the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like the color of a burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides, and they four had their faces in their wings. Their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side. They four also had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies. They went every one straight forward. Where the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. And you will notice that the whole thing, the uh, executing motivation here is the Spirit. Where the Spirit was to go, there they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, now notice this, the first thing that he sees is a whirlwind of fire that comes out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and a brightness about it, and out of the midst of it, the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Now here it is where Ezekiel's vision starts, a whirlwind of fire, flaming fire like amber. Now that's the start, and he comes out of the north. Now uh, you read through the Old Testament, it becomes obvious that the north was the source of all their trouble. That's where the Babylonians came from, because if you remember Palestine, you will remember that. Uh, that's Mediterranean too, and Babylon was over here. And Jerusalem was down here. But there was no way that an army could march around to, say, the Mesopotamian area, Babylon, or Assyria. Far too high for Babylon, way down here. There was no way that a Babylonian army could march across here because it was pure desert. So every army that came out of the Middle East had to come this way. And you will remember that the way Abraham Abraham came from Ur, the Chaldees down here, up to Haran, and from Haran he came down south. So that, whether it was the Hittites up in here, or whether it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Arameans, Hadad, anybody you want to name, except three, every great force that came against Israel came out of the north. So that when you talk about anyone, you look north, you never knew this was the source of your trouble, and so the north usually is related to mystery and to fear. Now, here comes God, right out of the same place, same direction from which Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Now I don't know about you, but uh, I have a suspicion. One of the things that God wants them to know is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't come from a place where the Lord was walking in sovereign control. And one of the things that I get as I read Ezekiel is that there is no place where God is not in sovereign control. Now, I believe that one of the great things that needs to be preached today in America among Christians is the sovereignty of God. God's in control. He's running this place. Now, sometimes we get fearful and tend to think he isn't. And we see society breaking pieces around us. And we see the forces coming against us. And we say, where is he? Now you get a little later in Ezekiel and when they're committing their vilest sin, somebody comes in and says, Why? And they say, because the Lord is forsaken us. He's left us. He's forgotten us. He doesn't know about us anymore. And Ezekiel comes along and says, There's no place he doesn't know about And he's running it completely. Now you can read Life Magazine, Time Magazine, and the New York Times for thirty years and never know it, but there's something those fellows don't know. And that is that God is in control not the communists it's not the uh Washington, it isn't China, it isn't Russia, it isn't black power it isn't any of the other historical forces that are among us, God is in control, and so the very place where Nebuchadnezzar came from who destroyed the city and dealt the greatest blow to the people of God that had ever been dealt he came from a place where God was running through. now you just keep that in your head, and it's encouraged. now what comes out of the north? A whirlwind of fire. And so he stares, sort of eagle-eyed at this he? he looks a little closer, and when he looks in the midst of that fire, he sees some things. And what does he see? He sees four living creatures. Now, the translations that we get are make it difficult for us sometimes, but there's no way you can get around it. A translator is a liar, but you can't live without him. This is an old rabbinic proverb. All translators are liars, but all translators are necessary because language is never scientific. And any time you get a word, there are half a dozen synonyms, and I can use a word, and you think one thing, and the guy next to you thinks something else, and the fellow next to him thinks something else. Uh, this is the way language is, so it, no translation is adequate. But oftentimes, when this says preachers, we don't know quite what to do with it. If you read the fourth chapter of Revelation, and it says feast. And when I was a kid first reading the book of Revelation, and it says that all around God were beasts, that bothered me. Now the word for beast there is not beast in the sense of beastly, it's beast in the sense of a beast. It's simply a a creature, a being that is there. Now in the midst of this flame, there is motion, and what is the motion? There's some living creatures that are there. Now, other places in the scripture, we get these described, and they're described more compatibly. In the 10th chapter of Ezekiel, you will find, if you look at it, that Ezekiel gives a name for these fellows. Then I looked in the beginning of the 10th chapter, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, and there you've got a name for them. These were cherubim. Now, the I am on is the plural. So you don't have a cherubim, you have a cherub, and then you have cherubim. Cherubim, or in the Hebrew, cherubim. Cherubim, actually. But these are creatures that are in this fire. Then if you will go down through, you will notice that there is something else there. Let's keep moving for a minute. It describes and says there were wheels. Verse 15. Now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures with his four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their work was like unto the color of a barrel. They forehead had one light. When they went, they went upon their four sides. Their rings were dreadful. Their rings were full of eyes round about them, the living creatures. When they went, the wheels went with them. Wherever the spirit was to go, they went. So you get this order: you get a whirlwind of fire, you get four living creatures, and then you get these wheels, and these wheels were wheels. Now, most of us have never known what to do with these. I noticed the growth people are the ones who are most at home with Ezekiel. Those could read this and write a, a great song spiritual about a wheel and a wheel turning way in the middle of the air. Big wheel runs by faith, and little wheel runs for the grace of God. Wheel and a wheel way in the middle of the air. I've always been fascinated by the fact that we got so much out of Ezekiel. you remember that them bones, them bones gonna walk around? That came out of Ezekiel 37, you know, the valley of the dry bones. Well, now, one of the reasons is because then was felt an affinity with Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a captain. Ezekiel was away from his home community, his home territory. Ezekiel was away from the things that were precious to him. His fortunes were determined by an enemy. His life was controlled by an enemy, by somebody other than himself. He was not able to determine his own destiny. And it's no accident. That the he turned here and began to find some sympathy and, and had an identification with him. But so you get the fire, the the whirlwind of fire, the uh, four living creatures, the wheel, a chariot, obviously, or some moving contraction. And then look at verse 22. And he says, and these were not ordinary wheels, because the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And the likeness of the firmament from the heads of the living creatures was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. So over these living creatures and over the wheels was a platform. Now the word platform makes a little more sense to me than firmament. I don't know what comes to your head by firmament. But here you have a whirlwind of fire. In the middle of it are these living creatures over their heads With them are these wheels that turn and that are filled with eyes. Over them is a platform. Now you'll notice where his attention starts. It starts with the fire. It starts with these emotions. And it starts with these wheels full of eyes. And then he sees the platform. And you can see a progression. And it's interesting that the most important thing he didn't see first. That's the way it was most tough. It takes us a little while to see what's most important. But now, under the firmament were these creatures with their wings. When they went, there was a great noise, the noise of their wings like the noise of great waters. There was a voice from the firmament that was over their heads when they stood and had let down their wings. And then in verse 26, And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne, notice the progression, the whirlwind of fire, in the midst of it, the living creatures, among the living creatures, by the living creatures, there are these wheels full of eyes, wheels within wheels, then above the wheels, the platform, on top of the platform, a throne, and then on top of the throne, what do you get? Now there is this big, and look what he says. Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber as the appearance of fire round about within it from the appearance of his loins upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of, of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that said, Now you compare that for a minute with Isaiah 6, and it is very different. In Isaiah 6, there is no, uh, platform quite like this. There are no wheels to turn. There are some things that are present. There are the living creatures, except in that case they're called seraphim. There's the voice that cries. It is a moving experience, but it is very stationary and set. It is in the temple, in the house of God, where God dwells. Now the minute you see this, you see that it is a mobile it is God's coming and he comes out of the north. It is a mobile chair of fire. Now the unique thing is that Ezekiel is the first person since the conquest, since Joshua led the people into Israel. He is the first person who has been a significant worshipper of God, a Hebrew, outside of Palestine. And what does he see? He sees the presence of God. Now the shocking thing is, God is coming to Israel, coming out of the north. Not uh, coming from Israel. Now you'll catch this as you go along in Ezekiel. Because Ezekiel lives to see the day when God's glory has departed from Israel. Now, they never believed that that would be possible. You know, we sort of always believe there will always be an American. We had uh, an address given at Ansberry on a few years ago and there will always be an there I know why it was given and believe in the sentiment. There will always be a people of God. That's no question you know, there won't always be an Asbury unless it's faithful to God. there uh, yeah. is no more permanent than anything else that's ever come in God. People say there'll always be this or that or the other. Remember, there's only one thing you can say that about that God and the things that are rightly related to him. Everything else will go. Now, this is one of the things that Ezekiel dealt with. All the shibboleth were tried, and all the false idols were broken. And there was a purification of faith that took place through Ezekiel that interests me. And I believe the church is going to have to be more pure than it is now if it's to survive what's ahead of And that's the reason I'm interested in Ezekiel. God getting up to the place where the false and the unnecessary, the marginal is purged away and sloughed away, And that which is pure can stand because that will endure. Now he sees this. Now, I want you to keep these things in mind. The fire. The whirlwind of fire. Now I'd like for you to go back through scripture and check on all the whirlwinds. You don't have to think long to think about some, do you? What happened at Pentecost? The place was shaken. There was a rush of a mighty wind. And cloven tongues as of fire sat upon each of them. Now, Ezekiel says, and the hand of the Lord was upon me." Now, I believe the two are related. The Spirit of God came upon Ezekiel, and he saw God. And what did he see? When God came to get the prophet Elijah, how did he come get him? He came in a chariot of fire, whirlwind of fire, and carried him away. Now, that ought to intrigue you a little. What about fire in relation to the presence of God? I'd like for you to start now and go back through the Old Testament, begin at Genesis, and just run through, and check out all the references you can on God in relation to fire. Uh, You may find there's something here of tremendous value to you in understanding. The scripture says that our God is a consuming fire. God is light. Let me intrigue you a little bit more. What's the final destiny of the lost? What about that lake of fire? I heard a man say once that uh, the difference between the saved and the lost is not their geography. I don't mean that there is there are no, no geographical references to consider here. Talk about an infinite count. But then he went, went on to say, he said, you know, the man whose eyes have never been opened could be like a bug on the golden throne of God. And he could be that close and be that far away from any understanding that it is say that one of the things that I think this vision is given for was to give these people the notion that God was prideful. Referring to that passage in Romans 2 where it says there's none righteous no not one. I checked was checking that in, in my testament and I noticed down at the end it says and there was no fear of God among them. Do you know the most hopeless man in the Old Testament? The man for whom there is no hope in the Old Testament? He's the man who has no fear of God. Anybody who has a fear of God, the Old Testament considers a person for whom there's hope. But if a man has no fear of God, you remember the two thieves on the cross? The one that was saved looked at the other and said, Dost not thou fear God? Now, I think one of the reasons for this is to give us a wholesome, holy fear of God. All right, uh, fine. I'd like for you to check all the references to the cherubim in the scripture, too. Where they occur, where they show up. I think you'll find this is interesting. Uh, this matter of eyes and wheels and the throne and this platform on which the throne of God sits. It is a terrible crystal. It is so dazzling that when you look at it, you go blind. Now, that's the man whose eyes are not open. You know, there is a light can be blackness to one person and it can be light to another and blind you. Well, now, all the elements that are in this picture are found throughout Christmas. They're found before and they're found after. Look at Daniel 7. And one of the things you'll find is is he says, I saw the Ancient of Days and his throne was a consuming fire. The Ancient of Days sitting on a throne of fire. So, uh, look at these. Now, let me ask you this. He looks at God. And there are two things that tantalize me, but this will quick for today. Well let, me, well let me ask you this. why the rain, why the bow? Don't answer me on that, but play with that. He says, I look in this formidable, formidable throne of fire. And God on it, and he himself is a flame from here up and from here down. And his appearance is like the boat. Fascinating. But hold on to two other things. One of them is He says, now don't get any false notions. I'm not totally sure what I saw myself. He says, because what I saw was the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. You read it to see if anywhere he says he saw God. He says, the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God. He was very careful in what he said. Now, one of the purposes of this vision is to let you know that you don't get close to God easily. And that God is radically different from us. And yet, when he says, I saw the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God, he says, I looked on the throne, and the one who sat there had the appearance of what? One of us. I don't know about you, but that's a fantastic thing. Notice in this vision the mixture of the things that repel you and drive you away, and the other things that draw you back, and say uh, the things that say I have no part with this one, and the things that say Oh yes, but there is something here that complements me. You remember old Peter? That remarkable catch of fish when they fished all night and caught nothing. And the boat is about to sink. And Peter, he said, Lord, there aren't any fish here. He says, drop your nets and find out. And the boat's about to sink. And Peter falls on his knees at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me. Because we don't have anything in common. Depart from me because I am a sinful man. And then Jesus looks at him and says, all right. Are you going to go away too? Everybody else is leaving. He says, but where will I go? There's the dilemma, isn't it? Now, I wish I knew how to picture that dilemma in this passage. It is in it from beginning to end. There is that which says, Depart from me because I'm a sinful man. I'm not like you. How under the sun can I embrace a God like this? Everything within me says, Which door do I get out? And then I take a second look and he's like me. The likeness of a man. And when Daniel saw him, he calls and says, likeness of, of the Son of Man. So there's this beautiful mixture, this uh, paradox of something that says, how do I get away? But where do I want to hide? Everything I need is right here. My only hope is here. And that's the paradox that many of you and many of us have felt. I remember... when the full consequences of obedience to Christ began to come home to me, I guess I'd been a Christian about five years. Terrified. And I wanted to run. And the Lord said, where are you going? Well, I said, Lord, I can't do what you want me to do. He said, where are you going to go? Are you going to leave me now? And I said, I can't do that. Now, there's some of this in here. And the beauty is that if you stick with him, you'll find his hand will come upon you, and you can do the kind of job that's an impossible job, which Ezekiel's job was, and he did it. How well did he do it? You and I are here today, and Israel would have perished without a message and a messenger like this. They would have simply gotten lost in the world, and the message would have died. But he didn't, <laughs> because it was a man who's seen God. He sending the likeness of the appearance of the glory of God.